What is happening? How are we doing? Uh, before the regular show, so a minute of your time, uh, in a few weeks, two or three weeks, you will hear an episode that I did with Adam Lewis Green, who is the person behind uh, Bibliotheca, which is a different version of the Bible. You'll find links to that in this episode's show notes, and that's at bibliotheca.co. But I would encourage you to do that because you'll want to know what the giveaway is. So in that conversation and throughout the organization of it, Adam had said, you know, let's give one of these away to a listener of the show. And that's a big deal. Like A, it's an expensive version of the Bible, but B, it's beautiful. And C, it has become one of my favorite versions of the Bible because I see things that I don't normally see that way because the verses and the and the chapters are just gone. So it's like I'm reading without interruption and I'm not explaining that well, but you'll see what I mean. So here's kind of the rules for entry, beginning with this episode and the next two. And so that third episode will be Adam Lewis Green's. Every time that you either rate and review the show on iTunes uh, during this time period, or Podbean, or anywhere else that you do, and I don't know how I'll keep track of those because I don't get alerted to those, so just let me know that you did that. Every time that you do that, I'm going to go ahead and put your name in the hat for the drawing. The easier way, though, and I think the way that most of you will do it, is to just share this episode or the next few. And so for those of you that already share the episodes, congratulations, your name is going to be entered in the hat easily. But for those that don't normally share the show with others, just share the show, tag the podcast, you know, either on Facebook or Twitter when you share it, And every time that that happens, I'm going to enter that name into a hat for the drawing. And so I'm really excited to see what happens, excited to see where it goes. So here we go. End of that. Begin regular episode. As pastors, as church leaders, we're we're on pedestals. People expect us to have answers. People look to us. And then sometimes we, we think we're supposed to have all the answers and to be at a point to a scripture or a verse to to respond to everything in the Bible. But the reality is that we don't know it all. And even the Bible says, you know, this might be my King James coming through, but we we see through a a glass darkly. We don't have the whole revelation. And while I'm convinced that our sexual orientation doesn't change, there's still a lot of conversation about how do we respond in healthful and faithful ways to our sexual orientation. And that's the part where instead of saying, you know, I don't know, let me ask someone, let me look, let me research. Um, where we don't. And so I would say it's, it's really important for, for pastors and, and church leaders and parents um, to be reading books. You know, you mentioned Brandon Robinson, uh, uh, Justin Lee, Matthew Vines, folks who have been writing amazing works on this and who have organizations like the Reformation Project, like Q Christian Fellowship, places where people are coming together specifically and healthfully to talk about this. My family, welcome to the show. This is the Can I Say This at Church podcast. I am still Seth, and so I am still your host. Thank you for downloading. Thank you for being here. I am really excited for you all to hear today's conversation. But before you do, we have to do the obligatory things, because I'm going to keep asking until you all keep doing it. I see the numbers of the downloads. And I know that most of you haven't rated and reviewed the show on iTunes. Please do that. Uh, Those ratings help. And I personally love to read them. You can just click a star, whatever star you want. One star, five stars, it doesn't matter. Well, it does matter, but you know what I mean. But when you type your comments on the show, man, they blow me away. They're just so encouraging. Most of the time. Sometimes they're not. They're just so encouraging. And so if you haven't done that, do that. I would also beckon you, consider you. So I recently have upgraded software for the show. um, And that has come in large part uh, from the support of our patrons. And so the next thing on the list is a mic. I record every single one of these on like a $34 mic that I got off Amazon, which requires quite a bit of work to make it audible. And it's okay. I'm happy to do the work, but I would like it to sound a little better. Uh, and so that's next on the list for the year is to kind of upgrade some of that and then have other bigger things on the horizon. So consider becoming a patron of the show. So over the last few months, for those of you that follow me on social media, you've seen the way that I talk about worship and the way that I talk about inclusivity in all manners and forms. Uh, and today's conversation is going to delve into some of those topics. And so I spoke with Darren Calhoun, who is a lot of things. But what I love that he is, 
is genuine and his story is one that needs to be heard and told. We just scratched the surface in today's conversation and we talk about conversion therapy. We talk about homosexuality in the church. We talk about liturgy and reclaiming songs that were used once to oppress. We talk about a lot of things. So I really hope that you get something out of today's conversation. And if you do, please let me know. So I present to you this conversation that I had uh, one afternoon with Darren Calhoun. Darren Calhoun, thanks for coming on to the show, man. Thanks for making time. I know, I think I originally asked you if you'd be willing to come on, I think like Thanksgiving, and then I forgot about it till January, and then I dropped the ball again until recently. So thank you for being patient with my lack of planning. I quickly realized that if my wife is not involved in the calendaring, it just doesn't happen. So I'm glad that we, <laughs> I'm glad that I, I'm glad that both of us finally found a place to make it work. But thanks again for being here. I'm glad to be here. I feel like, well, so for past prior listeners of the show, I've used, you're, you're in a, a band or a worship group or musical it, group. I'm not sure what the word is, um, called The Many. Uh, and so yeah. for those listening, the music from Nicole on um, Fat and Faithful, that was, well, I, I don't think the voice was yours. I think the voice was probably Lenora, um, or I could be wrong, but because you don't have a female voice, but... Um, I, I do <laughs> um, well, maybe you can hit a falsetto. You that, that. talk to Lenora, and on the song you're hearing, you're primarily hearing uh, Hannah sing. Well, then, Lenora, I'm sorry that I got your name wrong. <laughs> but I would like to kind of put put this conversation in perspective. A way that I always like to start is kind of just tell us what matters about you. Like, so if you were to drill back, and we've got as many minutes as you want to take, what makes Darren tick? Like, what has been impactful? for the way that, or for the person that you are right now? I mean, we could go way, way back mm -hmm. and look at the circumstances of how I was born. Um, I was a preemie and the doctor said he is not going to make it and, and told my parents to, you know, make plans either for me to be a vegetable or for me to um, just not survive. And uh, my parents had, had faith that, uh, that I was going to do that. And they often had to resist doctors and, and push past all of that. Um, and so now I'm a six foot two, 230 pound man. Um, mm. <laughs> was, you know, doing pretty, pretty well in life. Um, Definitely made it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> huh. um, but that's that kind of uh, resilience and perseverance, perseverance have always been characteristics of, of, pretty much every story where some group, some person, some authority has counted me out, told me that I wasn't going to make it, that I'm not good enough. Um, and that, you know, not, not to, you know, not to, not to be combative, but to literally say, no, I am, I'm, I have a purpose. I'm going to live. I'm going to survive. Um, and so that takes us into all kinds of really interesting places, but it's well, a, yeah, it's a, we'll take us into a few of those interesting places. So since theology is basically the kind of backdrop of this show, where, where in your life has either the Bible changed meaning or had meaning, uh, you know, that God had meaning or changed in meaning. And then how has that kind of informed where you sit at now with everything? And I guess, honestly, at the end of that question, you probably have to say where you sit now with everything for any of that to matter. Well, it's it's interesting. Um, I grew up in a home that was Christian, but we weren't necessarily part of a church. And um, my first church experiences, I was right away involved in leadership and and uh, youth groups and lock-ins around. I want to say sixth grade, so like twelve years old. Um, and as as a as a young teen, I was leading retreats and youth lock-ins and shut-ins and so forth. But it wasn't until college that I really started digging into the Bible personally for the first time. And it was because people were telling me that the Bible says that you can't be gay. And so that's an interesting place to, to start this personal relationship with scripture. Um, but uh, it was because of that, that I got involved even deeper in ministry. Um, there, there ended up being a campus ministry that formed, spent a few years trying not to be gay as a result of that. Um, and really suffering the 
ways that scripture and the ways that church community can be abusive. Um, and eventually it was also scripture that, uh, specifically the message paraphrase, um, that challenged the, the circumstances that I was in. It was just like this. Every time I see a bad by a bad church in the Bible, it looks like the church I'm a part of hmm. and that's not okay. And so, um, the same, the same thing that led me to years of bondage was the same thing that led me out of that bondage. Um, and that informs the advocacy and justice work that I do today. So when you say, well, not bondage specifically, but when you talk about like church as quote, air, high in the sky, air quotes, you know, uh, this is a bad way of doing church. Like, what do you mean? Like, if you were to flesh that out a bit, what does that look like? Because I want to make sure if people are listening, um, and I have a few people in mind actually that I know will listen, uh, that may in the next few years be struggling with some of what you just described. And they're going to go off to school. I know they happen to be gay. And I know that uh, there are pockets of our world that are loving and there are other bigger pockets that, well, they're not. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, I don't think high school and or parenting, uh, at least not if I ever have to deal with it, I, I don't know how to prepare someone for that. And so, you know, for pastors listening or for people sitting at church, like, what did that look like? Like, what were the telltale signs that you're like, all right, this is not healthy. Like what were, what was happening? Yeah. Well, one of the things that's hard about, about seeing this is that it doesn't usually come out in overt, direct ways. The first conversation was, hey, what does the Bible say about you being gay? And it, and it was a Bible study, and that felt good. And, and I felt like, oh, this is something where nobody's just telling me what to do. Um, but what happens is, uh, or what happened in my case, was that evolved into um, some really unhealthy things um, around shame. So when... In that space where I mentioned not identifying as gay anymore, uh, the this story reached the ears of a pastor who was a part of the church that I, I had joined at the time. And this pastor told me that I should never, ever want to talk about having been gay, that I should uh, be ashamed that it was ever part of my life, and that I should forget it ever happened. And his uh, well-intentioned but very harmful reasoning was, well, if people ever knew that you were gay, then they would never receive you as a man of God. Hmm. And so it puts on you these kind of unreasonable expectations that your story in some kind of way is a liability and that honesty and, and transparency and truth come secondary to how you're perceived. And so it's set up in me um, a very deep cycle of shame, um, set up in me um, these this questions of, okay, I'm a 19-year-old who... Um, at 18 is kind of when the campus ministry started at 19. Now I'm um, being ordained as a minister. And my pastor just told me that I should never talk about that part of my story. Um, and now I'm uh, feeling the weight of trying to figure these things out on my own. And this pastor never, ever shared any of his struggles, or any of his failures. He's always pointing the blame at other people. Mm-hmm. And so that's another thing that kind of happens where um, instead of, listening instead of um, being vulnerable about your own challenges and and suffering, uh, where it's always, you just need to be more spiritual. You just need to get it right. And so that it, it just continues to evolve to greater, greater, greater and greater demands. um, These unreasonable expectations. Um, At one point in my story, I sat down with the elder because I was struggling um, with this shame that led to a sexual compulsion. And in that church, there was no difference between being gay and having an addictive um, behavior. It was all a spirit. It was all spiritualized. And I just needed to pray more. I just need to be more spiritual. Um, But the reality was that what they were telling me is um, not even biblical stuff. They were saying, if you were really saved, I'd be able to see it in your eyes. And if you really, really want want to be saved and make it to heaven, then you need to um, do everything that we say so that you can uh, get rid of that spirit. Mm. Um, And I knew in the moment that what they were saying wasn't biblical. I'd been teaching Bible studies for several years at that point. Um, But I was so desperate for support, for help. Um, I wanted to be pleasing to God. I wanted to be pleasing to the people who represented God in my life. and it would be many, many years before I uh, built up the fortitude to realize that that 
what they were doing was about behavior control mm-hmm. and it wasn't about any kind of real life change. It wasn't about anything scriptural. It was just, they were objecting to homosexuality and in doing so they were spiritualizing all these rules and things to do um, that were supposedly going to help my life, but they couldn't even do that. I just want to circle back on something because I don't know that I've ever talked about it with anybody. So they were basically saying your, you know, your homosexuality is on par with his gambling addiction and her shopping addiction and his mental depression and that kid's autism or whatever. Like it's just something that you're just going to have to learn to cope with and control because you should be able to learn how to control this or am I mishearing that? Um, Well, there's, there's, there's a few pieces in there that, that particular comparison where we, compare other quote-unquote vices mm-hmm. to sexual orientation mm-hmm. we never ever say you need to be delivered from heterosexuality even though there's mm-hmm. all kinds of heterosexual sin right. Um, right but we say your whole orientation every desire your romantic desire your companionship desire your um sexual desire all of that is inherently bad which again isn't actually scriptural um and that you have to get rid of all of that and that if you this is where it gets really tricky. If you aren't being sexually active with with someone, a lot of heterosexual people think, oh, you've been healed. Or if you date someone um, or marry someone of a different gender, they'll say you've been healed, but they've never accounted for what your temptations are, what your desires are, what your, your, um, what your longings are for. Mm-hmm. And so there's the part where you you're, you get your sexual orientation equated to things like just um, a thorn in the flesh or something that you just have to keep struggling with. But then there's this other side of it where you're told that, no, if you're um, really spiritual, if you really believe God, if you're really a believer, that God will take this whole thing away from you. And that this is where conversion therapy comes in, or mm-hmm. this is where pray the gay away comes in. Um, where it's there's some act that you need to do that is going to alleviate you of these issues and that if you don't receive that promise of freedom or healing that it's somehow your fault and Mm -hmm. so who cares that they actually can't show that any of this is effective to help people who cares if it if you know the american psychological association says that this is damaging to people as long as you can find that one person to say, well, my cousin got healed or my uh, my friend at work used to be gay and he's happily married with kids. That becomes the thing that just throws out everyone else's stories and experiences. Yeah. Um, like this holding true to the Bible. Yeah. I've never liked when people say that because um, to me, it's as ingenuous, disingenuous. I don't, I'm not, I don't have a good command of the English language. It's whatever that is when people are like, I can't be racist. Like my, my cousin married a black person. Like, so of course I'm not racist. Like it puts all the onus on you or me to, to, to do it right or do it wrong. But I don't have any blame in this. Like it's, you just did it wrong. I'll pray for you. I don't know much about conversion therapy. And so I recently listened to, it's like a spinoff of Radiolab and that Chad Umbu, I can't say his name, but everybody that listens to podcasts knows who NPR is. So they did like um, like a partnership or a mini series with a different, I think, I think it's called Seen or Unseen or something like that. And it talks a lot about conversion therapy. And it has a guy that I guess really started, to, like he was like one of the finding kind of people that was trying to make people change who now happens to be in Texas. I think he's a blacksmith and he's been married to his husband for like 15 years. Um, And he, he said a lot of things in there, Uh, but I feel like I still don't know what conversion therapy even means outside of like behavior modification. So what does that look like for people listening that, and the reason I ask is it's really easy for, for, you know, a relatively model quote unquote of what we think of, you know, man married to one woman, with a family, like I haven't, I haven't had to put my head in the ostrich sand to mm-hmm. know anything about that. Cause it's just never really been in my channel until recently yeah. or in my lane until recently. Uh, you know, I started reading like Brandon Robinson and, uh, doing this podcast has made people ask me a lot of weird questions, uh, mm-hmm. of which I realize I'm unprepared to answer. And that's definitely on the list. So what does that even look like? Yeah. Uh, conversion therapy is a very large umbrella. Um, 
it's very popular because of movies like Boy Erased and um, and and other movies that are talking about it now. Um, but it's the practice where um, either by the traditional therapy methods like counseling or or um, or uh, group counseling or something like that, where you are doing whatever these practices are for the sake of your sexual orientation changing from something other than heterosexual to heterosexual. There's also the uh, informal practices, um, which is more of what I was a part of, where um, by means of prayer, by means of fasting, by means of, of some spiritual discipline, that you would be um, healed or become heterosexual. The programmatic, the, the therapy route tends to have more of a name to it. Um, whereas when, when you just go to your pastor and say you're struggling, um, it doesn't necessarily get the name conversion therapy, um, but, it's, but it, is, it does come with the same promise that if you do this, then you'll be pleasing to God. Um, and the, the challenge with it is that, uh, like in the United States, there's a very long history of different practices, even performed by our government, such as electroshock therapy, such as vomit therapy, where um, because the U.S. government felt that this was a, a a horrible thing to exist, they subjected people in in hospitals and medical labs to these kind of treatments that were supposed to associate your same sex desires with pain or with repulsion, and so you'd be locked in a room for 24 hours given something to make you vomit while they're showing you gay pornography. And that was supposed to change your, your mind mm. about this attraction. Um, in less intense ways, churches um, will do things like have a camp where you're around very hyper macho men and they're telling you, swing the ball, walk like this, talk like this. Um, even my pastor at one point had preached a sermon was like, well, don't come to me if your voice is high. You got to put some ba bass in your voice, <laughs> you know. Yeah, because that that's something you can control. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> and clearly, if my voice had a lower register, then I'd be happily heterosexual. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe if mine was slightly higher, I'd have had more hair. Like it just, yeah, yeah. like something I can control. Absolutely. That is, that is disheartening. Like I don't. Yeah, so they didn't go into the detail on that on that other show that I was listening to. And I honestly didn't yeah. Google it because I was afraid of what I'd see. Um, and then I watched uh, I watched the show called uh, At the End of the Day based on a recommendation of a friend the other day. I don't know if you watched that movie or not. Oh, man, it is. Um, I'm trying to find the best way to describe it. So I, I'm pretty sure everything is like hypothetical. So let's just pretend and I'll pick on my alumni on my university because I paid for that, right? Um <laughs> So Liberty University wants to buy the place across the way. And the only way to do it, uh, the problem is it was it was willed by Darren to be a sanctuary uh, to this to this support group. Now, the support group happens to be an LGBTQ support group where people can come and be open and be like, guys, I just I just don't feel right. Like, I, you know, to try to pe to make people feel welcomed, like I'd argue to, to make people do church um, just in a different building. And Liberty University wants to buy the building, but mm -hmm. they can't unless this other organization can't come up with the money. And so they basically hire a dude to go in and just be in there and mm -hmm. try to sabotage the efforts. Um, and it's a moving movie. Like I actually just watched it not knowing what it was going to be about. And then at the end, I just sat there. I, was, I just didn't even know what to do. They, they don't talk about gay conversion therapy, but they there's a lot of you know suicide and oppression yeah. and bigotry. I'm curious because you've you have the distinct I guess privilege is the wrong word but um perspective is probably a better word of you know being ordained and being you know being on both sides or at least being able to see both sides of of where everybody's coming from you feel like a reason that maybe some pastors or churches push people towards washing my hands of you now you go do the work is cuz they're just not trained to deal with that like is that I don't want to give them an excuse but yeah. is, is there some truth to that? And if there is, how do we fix it? Like, how do we better equip ministers to counsel that way? Because I don't think, like, I don't think the minister that I had as a youth would have been equipped to handle that. Then yeah. again, I never asked him either, so. Right. 
Um, I mean, a little a little part of my story is I, I spent two years living in the church basement in Chicago and then another two years living in an old Sunday school classroom in Indiana. And all of these were direct um, counsel or direct uh, instruction from my pastor at the time. And these were part of the solution that he was promising. And um, at the end of that four year period, I was ready to move back to Chicago and pr- pursue therapy um, because it was, I felt like I was just hiding from what my struggle was. And uh, when, when it came down to the day I was supposed to leave, he shows up in Indiana, has a one-on-one meeting with me, and I'm explaining him my rationale, my thought, all the prayer that's gone into this. And he says, well, I just, I just don't want you to go. And when I say, no, I really feel like God is calling me to leave, um, not leave the church, but just go back to Chicago and get therapy. Um, and this is something that he'd been highly resistant to. Now, when to. you say therapy, you mean conversion therapy or different therapy? Um, at that time, I didn't know that conversion therapy was a thing per se. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did expect that if I went to a Christian therapist, that they were going to make me heterosexual. Okay. okay. Um, and when, when it got to that, that critical moment, he finally just said, well, you know, I've never talked to somebody who's struggled with this spirit, referring to someone being gay and that he was just praying and hoping something would happen if he had me do all these things, move this place, pray these prayers, um, fasting all these different hours. And it was it was kind of shocking, kind of devastating, because it was like, it's one thing for you to just, just not know. It's another thing for you to pretend you know and to, to send me through all these life changes um, including quitting school, shutting down my business, cutting off friends and family, you know, the, the, the laundry list of things that happened. Um, and then you go, well, I was just hoping to figure it out as we go. Hmm. Um, and having never disclosed that. And it's one of those things where as pastors, as church leaders, um, we're, we're on pedestals. People expect us to have answers. People look to us. And then sometimes we, we think we're supposed to have all the answers and to be at a point to a scripture or a verse to, to respond to everything in the Bible. But the reality is that we don't know it all. And even the Bible says, you know, this might be my King James coming through, but through, we, we see through a, a glass darkly. We don't have the whole revelation. And while I'm convinced that uh, our sexual orientation doesn't change, there's still a lot of conversation about how do we respond in healthful and faithful ways to our sexual orientation um, and that's the part where instead of saying, you know, I don't know, let me ask someone, let me look, let me research, um, where we don't. And so when it comes to the answer that you asked about 15 <laughs> minutes ago, um, <laughs> I would say it's, it's really important for, for pastors and, and church leaders and parents to be reading books. You know, you mentioned Brandon Robinson, uh, uh, Justin Lee, Matthew Vines, folks who have been writing amazing works on this and who have organizations like the Reformation Project, like Q Christian Fellowship, places where people are coming together specifically and healthfully to talk about this. Mm-hmm. There's even a, an organization called Revoice that is um, about Christians who are uh, gay or same-sex attracted, who don't feel that, that, that that's how they should, that they should pursue that as a relational model. And so they're committing to celibacy and um, people there are just trying to figure out what does it look like to do this in a healthy way um, as opposed to a mandated way or opposed to um, people responding out of fear or something like that. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot out there, but because we won't do a Google search <laughs> or because we assume that pastors always right, um, we really hurt people. And we, we um, people, especially youth um, are homeless in the United States because they're, as minors, their family has determined that because they're gay, because they're trans, that they can't live in their house anymore. Mm. That's that's the failure of the church. That's where the church has to stand up. I don't care what you believe about me being a gay man. I need you to make sure there is not a single gay youth or trans youth on the streets. Right now, it's 40% of the homeless population is LGBTQ. Um, that's something LGBTQ youth. That's something the church can do something about. Yeah, I did not. Know, that's a huge number. Yeah, I, I didn't. I had no idea. That's a huge number. Downcast eyes.
grip of hate The words we shout and the words we do not say The slow burn, the anger we feed I've referenced this in a lot of interviews, but um, or in a lot of episodes. Uh, one of the favorite things that anyone said was Sean Palmer from Ecclesia. Ecclesia? I don't know how you say that church in Houston. He had basically said, you know, the role of the church should be, you know, you draw like a five mile, three mile, two mile, whatever the mile radius is. And like these humans that live here, they're ours. Everybody there. What do you need? You're mine. Like I will, you need a house. I got you. You need your lawn mowed. I got you. You can't get yeah. to the doctor. I got you. Free and reduced lunch. You can't afford it. I've got you. Like that's, yeah, we've got you. Like, I don't even care if you come to church here. And I don't care if you tithe here. I've got yeah. you. Like you're my, you're, you're my responsibility, um, which is beautiful if it actually happens. What's, <laughs> what is the, the, you said that Eugene Peterson's the message. There's some passage in there that the paraphrase like was impactful for you. So what, what is that or that paraphrase? Um, so the, really the, 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 the document, the book as a whole, it sat in ways. And, and again, the context was I was in a King James only church. And I personally was reading the NIV because some things I just never went with <laughs> within the church. Um, and then I'm hearing bad interpretation of scripture that justifies things like violence and justifies things um, like, you know, you can never say anything back to your pastor. But then I'm reading the the, the message and it was just very plain language in a church that people literally would slip into King James English <laughs> when they were speaking at times because it was so much part of the, the, the culture, um, especially if they felt that they were prophesying or saying something from the Lord. And so here it is, the scripture is just speaking to me and it's, speak, it's reminding me of things that, that always were true um, or always felt like they resonated in my heart. I mean, like when I think about it, there were some things in Revelation. Um, one of my favorite scriptures, Revelation, I think it's 12 and 11 or 11 and 12, where it talks about they overcame by the blood of the lamb um, and the word of their testimony because they feared not their lives unto death, which is probably the, the King James translation of it. But that was the exact opposite of what my pastor had told me. It was like, don't tell your testimony. Don't, you know, be afraid of, of, of. Uh, his words were, the devil wants me full of AIDS and to go to heaven with AIDS, which, again, that's not how things work. <laughs> <laughs> and clearly, God's not afraid of HIV. But he was twisting these things. And in, and the things he was twisting were, were not life-giving. They didn't result in the kind of behavior change that he wanted. But when I found that that this idea of grace being really sufficient where I found this idea that that love really does, at the end of the book, win. <laughs> it was like, oh, wait, wait, wait. We're going about this all wrong. We're, we're approaching this from a place of fear hmm. and a place of shame. And the reality is that God's like, no, I unashamed and without reservation or fear love you. And I just kept seeing that over and over in the scripture. Yeah. So you do other things now. So I know that you are an activist. I've followed you on Facebook for some time. You talk about race quite a bit. You talk about LGBT, L, bah, LGBTQ issues. Um, I've always struggled to say that. I, I, I think I talk too fast to say individual letters. And then you also, you know, lead worship. Like I, I remember reading an article, I think it was in, was it Time Magazine? Which is a big deal. Was it Time that, that had you? People? Either way, it's a big deal. I don't care. It's a magazine. Like it's, it's, if you're on the end cap, like at every store in America for any length of time, that's a, yeah. that's a big deal. And it was the sexiest man alive issue. Not that it had anything to do with that, but I can say that for the rest We're, of my life. <laughs> I was, yeah, I, I would, yeah, just if you <laughs> yeah, pick up, I'm, I'm in the sexiest man alive issue and you just leave it at that. And people can think like, well, what number was he? What do you exactly. think? Like, what do you think? I mean, like top, top 30, definitely top 30. Right, somewhere. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> Uh, I didn't know it was a sex. Was that not? That's not the Blake one, though, right? That's not the Blake. It, it is the Idris Elba one, which I also am very happy about. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Idris Elba is a beautiful man. Exactly. Dude mm -hmm. looks good. Like I wish I looked as good as he did, but I don't right. think it's the way he looks. I just think it's the way that he comes off. Like he sits there, looks at the camera, like, "Can you just take the just take the picture? 
I got crap to do. Like there's something about the confidence. Like I just have things to do. If I can right. just, if I can just go home, please, that would be awesome. <laughs> um, that, that confidence I think is what's attractive, not necessarily the looks. So though they don't, they don't hurt. They should make him James Bond. We're on a tangent. So now Amen. you, <laughs> now you, you know, you lead worship, you write music. I feel like I read that you, that you write liturgy, but I could be wrong on that. How has all of that past, you know, shaped the way that you do, church now because you from what i understand like you lead worship weekly and and there is something distinctly holy um at least for me you know when i'm leading worship and i honestly don't even hear the monitor anymore like i don't yeah. hear the people i don't i don't even really hear the music anymore like there's something else there and that's hard to describe to someone that's never led corporate worship but i i have to think that you know what i'm talking about like it doesn't happen every week it's actually rare um, but when it happens, it's beautiful. So how does all of that past kind of fit into what you do now? Like, and how does it shape what you do now? Yeah. So I'm, I've always got backstories. So um, when I was living in Indiana, mm -hmm. in the place in my life where I felt the most useless and helpless, um, I'd been sat, they, the leader sat me down from leading Sunday school and, and, and uh, leading a dance team and singing on the praise team and balancing the church's books, even though I don't know anything about finances. Um, <laughs> like, they sat me down from all that, and I felt like a complete failure. And I specifically felt like I'm not useful to God because I can't do the things that I'm good at, um, because I've messed up and I'm so horrible because, I because I'm attracted to the same gender. Um, and it was in that place of being asked to do nothing that uh, God kind of prompted in me. It was like, if you were quadriplegic, and you only had the ability to blink your eyes, that God was saying to me, I still would love that praise from you. That it isn't about how you express it, it isn't about how big or how quote unquote important it is in church, but it was like, I just desire what to, to just receive and to, to be in connection with you. And that whatever you have is important to me. And so that was transformational for me. I, I felt like, okay, I might be shamed. I might be counted out by my church leaders, but God still desires me. God still is welcoming my praise. And so that actually ended up leading me, leading to me eventually starting another dance team in Indiana and starting and sing with praising there, but with a whole different perspective where instead of worship um, and our corporate singing and musical times instead of that being about like having the best and 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 performing in a way that's pleasing to the pastor and to pleasing to the people it was just like no god just really wants to just sing with us and dance with us and uh whether that's you know by yourself and in, in the in an empty room or if that's a room full of people that there's something special that happens there and that every single person is absolutely invited not just the people who sing well not just the people who dance well not just the people who can speak well or pray out loud very well but that literally everyone has something to contribute and that we build each other up in that mm -hmm. and so when it comes to 2019 and me um being at a church that is fully lgbt inclusive that is um that is actively anti-racist working against the structures that perpetuate racism i finally get to bring my whole self and it is such a liberating experience to not have to filter. You know, you, you do a little intro to a story and, and not have to filter out parts of it because you're worried about somebody objecting. Um, where I can speak about the, the moments where God has shown up for me in profound ways um, and invite people who have been counted out for those same kind of experiences to, to very boldly declare. Um, even some of the music, some of the music that we sing sometimes comes from churches that are not affirming, that are not uh, very welcoming of people like me to be in a leadership position. Um, but when we sing a song and it and we take it back, we reclaim it. There's something very, very, very powerful about the same words that were used to condemn us and to tell us we weren't good enough and to tell us that that God has counted us out that we can take those words back and celebrate God with them. It's a form of resistance. <laughs> yeah. And um, it is, it is so amazing just to be able to sing, sing words of life um, that sometimes Christian music, and I'm sure you've experienced this. Sometimes Christian music can be so abstract and just so out there that it could be talking about anything you just never know. Mm -hmm. 
But to take some of that and to pull it down and to say, um, um, you are for us, who can be against us? Like us, LGBTQ people, mm-hmm. us, people of color, us, gender expansive folks like us. Who can be against us? Not the current presidential administration, mm-hmm. not uh, the, the person at your job who's, who's against you, not your family who said that you were worthless. Who can be against us? Like that is a reason to, to declare praise to God, um, not just because the mountains and the hills and the valleys moved. I love mountains and hills and valleys, <laughs> but I'm in some stuff right now and I need something that I can respond to. Yeah. So two questions on that. Um, a, uh, so I go to a Baptist church and by proxy, that means that I cannot dance. And so <laughs> if I can't dance, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that I'm not disqualified. Correct? You are not disqualified. Perfect. Because my dancing is effectively swaying to slow music um <laughs> and and maybe dip every once in a while um so yeah, right with you <laughs> yeah <laughs> and then i'm curious so uh what that last section there where you were quoting that sounds like a chris tomlin song to me and so i'm assuming that that's what you were claiming but i'd like to kind of give that perspective because you're right like the music on k-love or spirit fm or way fm or just turn the radio past 92.3 going towards the 80s and that's going to be your christian block there regardless of the city that you live in i think at least anyone anytime i travel if you want to listen to positive and encouraging that's where it is um is that how it is in chicago those lower ends i was gonna say at this point i do not listen to radio i curate all my own little playlists well, on Spotify. i'm in the same i'm in the same boat <laughs> but if you turn it on that's where it is like if i need something yeah. if i need something that is not uh drake you know, or, or top 40 on repeat. It's that, which is just a different top 40, but you're right. A lot of those songs don't mean anything. Uh, and the ones that do are not on the radio. Uh, like, like, like I'm recently, like I've been listening to uh, an album by Andy Squires. I don't know if you're familiar with him or not. Like his last album, like the song deals with loss and like every lyric in it is intentional and you won't hear any of that. Um, But there's so much searching for God, so much welcoming as he's hearing and seeing new things, so much brokenness and so much healing all at the same time. Or like William Matthews, like that Cosmos album is like the whole first half is just full of darkness and hatefulness and not fitting in. And then literally has a song called The Gray. Like, I'm just literally lukewarm. Like, I don't even know where I fit in anymore. All the way to, oh, it doesn't matter. Like what you were talking about. Like, I'm accepted. I'm wholly loved. It's just beautiful. It's more beautiful than any, uh, nothing against passion or Mercy mm-hmm. Me's version of, Mer- Mercy Me's version of, um, you know, Maroon 5, the Christian version of Maroon 5. Like, nothing <laughs> against that. It's just that's, that's an insight. I'm gonna note. That. Um, I don't know if that's the right analogy, but that's what I feel like. Like not right. songs about Jane Maroon Five, because that was good. Um, gotcha. Every everything since then. <laughs> um, uh, I don't know if you've heard songs about Jane, but that album is good, uh, really good. Um, anyway, so how does that then? So for the so for corporate worship, that makes sense. But how do you like? What made you want to do? Um, music with the many because that music has a very like definite intentionality to it like when I load up that album let me put it this way like it's not an album that if I want to sit down and just like I'm not going to do the dishes to the many's album like I'm going (laughs) I'm going to listen with intentionality and so what's kind of that mission there and its purpose yeah and it's it's the it's the same thing where um Lenora who writes many of our of our lyrics she she did not like being in spaces where it was all happy clappy. It's, it's, a, it's a phrase some people like to use, but where it was all these very assured and confident songs. And she was like, but I don't feel assured and confident. Um, for me, I remember uh, struggling with the idea that, I remember there was a, a Chris Rice song called Clumsy. And um, it, I get so clumsy. I get so foolish. Oh, I feel so yeah. stupid sometimes. I, I feel, feel so useless. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're still going to hold me. You still mm-hmm. want to hear me. And it's a good song. Me. Like, I remember uh, during my campus ministry days, 
like when people would be really, really struggling, really growing through. And we were in a church in a, in a community that was always, I'm good, I'm happy. It doesn't matter how, doesn't matter if my kid just blo- died, I'm blessed. Like we were that kind of church. But I would like have people alone in my car and then I just, I just put the song on and just, we'd sit in silence and then they'd be crying. <laughs> hmm. And it was just like, I had to do this secret ministry because it was like, yeah, I get it. You feel that. And this is something we'd never do in our church. I can't even fully acknowledge that I listen to music like this, <laughs> but we need songs that let us lament. We need songs that let us feel the hard stuff because it's real and it's not absent from the Bible. We just never, ever, ever, ever dig into it because we we bought into the idea that we need to look perfect and that we need to that that, that perfection is is having it together when the reality is perfection is actually just being mature about whatever it is that we're going through. I forget who it was, someone that I interviewed, I think it was Professor Soon Chan Ra actually said like the sixty something percent, seventy something percent of the whole Bible is lament. Mm-hmm. But we just don't really preach on any of that. Like we only, we can only talk about the triumphant, you know, my God is powerful. My mm-hmm. God is this, my God. But we're not going to talk about any of the other stuff because I need you to leave feeling energized so you can go not tip your waiters and then come back next week and tithe again. Um, so <laughs> absolutely. Um, what are some of those songs then that you've reclaimed? Like that you, like that if people heard it, they're like, oh, I wouldn't have thought about the song from that mindset. Yeah, a, a, a big one. Um, and again, not that the original authors were had malintent, but mm-hmm. Break Every Chain. Um, that one, uh, I think Will Regan originally did it. Tasha Cobbs has covered it, and Tasha Cobbs is publicly anti-gay. Um, mm. <laughs> putting that out there. Um, that song is often about, oh, you know, you got to break that spirit of, of homosexuality. You got to break. That's what she literally says in one of her recordings, a live recording. Of that the, song? On that song. Oh, my. Um, and you, 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 get, you get that message over and over again that these are chains. These are bondages. Um, and for me, that's become a justice song. That's become a song where uh, at the end of several of the Reformation Project's gatherings that we, we've sung um, that we as reformers are going out to break the chains of bondage against LGBTQ people in the world, um, to watch people who, and we've done it during communion. So to add another layer to it, to watch people who, because of their gender expression or because of, of who they were um, loving in a, in a healthy way, were told that they could not ever have communion. They could not partake in, in the, the, the communion supper to see them holding up the elements and blessing it for our congregation to see them going out and giving communion while we're singing break every chain like we're breaking we're very literally breaking the history of of how they've been experiencing church and so it's all of a sudden it's not about like these these very vague oh whatever bad thing like no this is very specific and it's going to be ours it's going to be for us it is going to be for our liberation um, cause that's, again, that's where I get this idea that, that, um, that some of what we do in worship is a resistance effort. Um, like we're all made in the image and likeness of God, who's a creator, who, uh, who has been pursuing relationship with all of us since the beginning and has not ever, uh, stopped doing so. Um, but then we get told that God is all these very limited things that God is very distant. Um, even some of our Western ideas about God. Um, that God is always up. Whereas if you look in an African and South American cultures, mm-hmm. God is down and present and in the ground. Mm-hmm. That changes how we read when God says to Moses, take off your shoes. This is holy ground. Instead of it being like, oh, your shoes are dirty. Don't, you know, it's like, no, get in this, get, get your feet mm-hmm. in it, get dirty in it, get, let it like completely, um, yeah. Um, overtake you because you're in the presence and the presence is, is in the ground. So get, get the barriers out of the way. Um, it's that kind of thing that, um, that I think we have to uh, reclaim again, that we have to have to change. Yeah. Um, trying to think of some more, more, uh, examples. no, that's fine. I want to, I want to leech off of that reclaim. Um, yes. so when I hear reclaim, it's an aggressive verb. So, mm-hmm. Uh, maybe intentionally aggressive, although I don't think you're using it aggressively, like, but just the verb or, 
or resist is also an aggressive or like I'm reminded of like just movies that you see if you know this mm-hmm. person's resisting arrest which usually mm-hmm. isn't passive you hope that it is but usually it isn't or we're resisting oppression or you know like so how do you be it LGBTQ um, you know resisting a world that seems to be structured at least currently um, in America uh, to not be welcoming um, or you know for immigration resist mm-hmm. that or for uh you know racist oppression resist that how do you do so uh teetering that line between aggressiveness because if you get too aggressive everyone that might have almost wanted to agree with you is going to quickly shut the doors and so um i hadn't planned that question but as i hear you saying the word resist like in the back of my mind i'm like well how would i do that like how do i do that because usually when you get aggressive um people just get defensive and then we stop. We're not talking anymore. We're just arguing, period. Yeah. So how do you, how how would you advise people to do that? Yeah. So there, there's a there's a really interesting thing, especially I'll say in U.S. culture, where um, the activity of the people who are at the margins, women, people of color, immigrants, so forth, the activity is instantly perceived as aggressive. Um, there's there's studies that have shown that black 12 year olds um, are not seen or I think like 10 to 12. Um, they specifically compared them in reactions to them to white children. They found that the black children were not seen as as children. They weren't seen as as safe, as innocent, like all these kind of things They were perceived as adults and they were perceived as aggressive, hmm. not they didn't have to do anything. They just their image invoked this idea. So that like they were put doing. so so ten is my, that my son's ten. So set him in the desk and then put you know a, a a person of a different race next to him and they would just look at the two and be like, he's white, he's passive, he's safe. This this person here, he's just not. Like is that what you're talking about? Or they're like, it's, yeah, it's, it's an implicit bias. We we've unconsciously associated darkness, specifically um, um, people who would be racist as black. Um, we've associated that with aggression. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we look at the different demographics and so forth, it looks a little bit different. But there is an implicit association that when we do stuff, it's considered aggression. So like a, a black woman speaking up for herself about the way she's being discriminated against, she's making noise, she's rocking the boat. But uh, but um, in the same scenario, a white man speaking up about what he doesn't have well, he's just telling the truth. He's just defending himself. He's being a good man. Mm-hmm. Um, those kind of scenarios play out over and over and over again. And so I, I name that to say that aggression has actually been weaponized against people of color often. That we are literally, we've very literally been subject to thousands of years of abuse and torment and, and um, disenfranchisement. Um, and then when we just name it, it's, well, why are you bringing race into everything? Why are you, you know, <laughs> it's like, I'm just describing our history. Yeah. I haven't even assigned value to it. Um, so when we name it, it gets, it gets treated that way. So the flip side of it is um, church has also taught us, especially in the U.S., especially if we're white, especially if we're male, church has taught us that things should be comfortable, that the way that we should exist in the world is that we shouldn't really have to think about or, or wrestle with things. And so our theology, our meet, our ways of interpreting scripture, our ways that we structure our society, even the neighborhoods that we live in, are all designed for comfort of a particular group of folks. And so even if that means that that I, as somebody who, who isn't centered in that in some ways, because I'm still male, so I get male privilege, but even if that means I have to constantly live in discomfort, it's okay. Cause you know, you just got to take that one on the shoulder check or take it on the chin. But if I mention that I experienced something and it makes you uncomfortable, then I'm back to being the problem. <laughs> right. <laughs> even though it was something done to me and so forth that, you know, it, another parallel of that is right now we're seeing over and over again um, that, white people have been calling the police on black people for doing things like having a barbecue or mm-hmm. going to the store or taking a nap, all things that someone felt it was so aggressive that they needed to call for help, that they needed to call the authorities, 
that that um, that someone needed to control it. And so, what what I'm getting at is the idea that um, you can look it up. There's a, a researcher who's who's published about right white fragility. Um, that this this uber comfort, and it's not to say no one can ever be at ease, but this heightened or extreme level of comfort has created this thing where we're not used to people disagreeing. We're mm. not used to people um, people speaking up in ways that that kind of go against the status status uh, quo, and so it will be perceived as aggressive. And many people of color, many LGBTQ people have advanced degrees, um, metaphorically speaking, in how to be super nice to people who are being horrible to them. Yeah. Um, but we don't get that kind of consideration in return. And often we have to fend for ourselves as many people like onslaught us with all kinds of things. And then we go, well, you're not saying it nice enough and, and so forth. So I don't know. It's a, it's a lot to unpack. Yeah. Um, Let's do but, part two. Let's do that. Yeah. We'll, we'll do part two. <laughs> um, <laughs> so there's a lot more there. You're right. Like we could probably talk for another few hours about that. Uh, and that's part of the danger of unscripted podcasting like I like to do. <laughs> Where would you point people to, Darren, uh, as we wrap this up? Like how do they connect with you? How do they uh, maybe connect with some resources if they're struggling with LGBTQ type of thing, or if they want to find a church that is, you know, they can just show up and maybe just worship God. Uh, and I don't even, I don't know what that looks like outside of, you know, Protestant church. So I don't know if, if there are other resources for other faiths or not. Um, actually, now I'm kind of, I'm kind of disappointed that I haven't given that more thought until just now. So if you know that, we'll plug that too, and then I'll go to it. Uh, and then how do they just connect with you? You know, how do they get a hold of your music, uh, you know, and, and with intention there? Yeah. Um, so the easiest way to connect with me would be to visit my website, DarrenCalhoun.com. And I'm sure there'll be a link somewhere to make that spelling easy for you. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm also on lots of social media uh, with the handle Hey Darren, H-E-Y-D-A-R-R-E-N. Um, I'm pretty social. I like Twitter and, and Facebook, especially, uh, friend me, follow me, whatever. Um, when it comes to resources, um, I've already mentioned organizations like the Reformation Project, uh, for Q Christian Fellowship. Um, but there's also, um, like in this search to figure out where's a church that you can show up and not get a booby trap. Um, when it comes to you being honest about your your gender identity or being honest about uh, who you are as a um, as a person who's not heterosexual, um, there is a great resource called Church Clarity. Mm. And Church Clarity is just doing this work to ask churches some simple questions: Will you uh, perform a same-sex wedding? Will you? Uh, hire women on staff? Would you hire a gay person on staff? And we just think that that's something that churches should be clear about. Yes or no, no bias to either side. But oh, just, so it's just like a grid. Like, we don't care yeah. what your answer is. Just what is it? Cool. Just we got it? like a census, basically. How many people live here? Fantastic. Yeah. Moving on. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. That's good. That's good. But you're right. Yes, I will link to all those. If you go back to whatever you listen to this on and scroll down to the bottom in the middle of a guest bio section there, all the links are at the bottom. They'll be blue. Um, but if you're here, you know how the internet works for the most part. So Darren, thank you so much for your time. I've really appreciated it, man. Um, sorry that it took so long to connect, but I look forward to doing it again at some yeah. point in the future. So appreciate it. Good to talk to you, Seth. It's not acceptable for people to come and sit down and be afraid to worship and actually be who they are. It's not acceptable for us to ever make people feel that way. And I don't just mean LGBTQ. I don't just mean, you know, gender issues. I just mean period. Like it is not acceptable for us to treat people in a manner that they feel unwelcome at a place that they're supposed to feel the safest. And as a church, as a people, and I mean capital C Church, we have got to do better of leading this, not reversing course. We've got to do better of engaging in the cultural context of Scripture. And we've got to do better of finding a heart that looks more like love and less like dogmatic rhetoric. And I know that it's hard. And I know that you may lose friends. And I know that you may stop talking to people that you talk to your whole life. 
but I also know that we're called to love people, and so we have to. The music that you heard featured today is uh, in part written and or sung by Darren and a, a band that he's part of called The Many. And so you will find links to their music in the show notes as well as everywhere else that you can get in touch with Darren. Remember to rate and review the show on iTunes, and I will talk to you next week. I hope you have a blessed week. <laughs>